This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Maybe we'll start out today's program, as I'm not sure we have ever done in the past, with a cartoon. The New Yorker is famous for its uh, amusing little drawings, which uh, they made many collections of over the years. You may have seen some. The last issue had one that caught my eye. It is a glum couple sitting on a couch, presumably the TV room. And, uh, oh, they just, they just don't look happy. The woman has picked up the telephone, <laughs> and, the, and the text below the line drawing indicates that her response to the caller is just hand-wringing and watching helplessly, which I think is how a lot of us feel these days. We're just watching helplessly and wringing our hands. And before we talk about the unfortunate saga of Brent Kavanaugh, I, I, I have to illustrate that cartoon with the following news item. Dateline, Wheeling, West Virginia. President Trump told a crowd of supporters last week that he fell in love with Kim Jong-un while negotiating at the two leaders' June summit. Trump has spoken warmly of the North Korean dictator and explained at the rally that during their initial nuclear talks, I was really tough and so was he. And we went back and forth and then we fell in love, okay? Responding to the audience laughter, Trump added, No, really, he wrote me, Beautiful letters, and soon we fell in love. Earlier that week, Trump said President Obama had been close to pressing the trigger on a nuclear war with North Korea that would have killed millions of people, and that if I wasn't elected, you'd be in a war. I just have to pause for a moment right here and and just gather myself, sorry. Because, you know, I'm pretty sure that if he hadn't been elected, that come January 20th, Barack Obama would not have remained president, you know, with that belligerent attitude toward North Korea. But anyway, according to The Week, Trump has called Kim very honorable and very talented between threats of calling off negotiations. North Korea, for its part, has resisted denuclearization without concessions from the U.S. And I noticed that uh, our friend of this, of this show, Mr. Paul Dorn, posted somewhere on Facebook uh, the fact that the Washington Post had taken a look at the latest op-ed written by Donald J. Trump, allegedly the President of the United States, in which not one single sentence in the op-ed piece could be considered correct. Yes, not one single sentence. And we've so far resisted having too much to say about the, the terrible saga of, of Brett Kavanaugh. I think I can summarize my personal reaction to his... Um, his hearings with a statement we have used before, which comes from the great humorist Wilson Misner. Misner pointed out once that it's pretty hard to believe a guy when you know that you'd lie if you were in his place. And as to the issue of whether Mr. Kavanaugh lied under oath, I would just have to say that, well, I believe that he did. And uh, I don't know, I guess I could be wrong about that, you know, I guess. Uh, I guess I could also be a monkey's uncle if he told the truth. 
I do want to say the appointment of Brent Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court has proved to be a bonanza for America's comedians. Andy Borowitz noted that in his headline, Kavanaugh disappointed to find on first day of job at Supreme Court they don't have happy hour. And you know who we need to hear from on this? Our old pal, Will Durst. Make a note of that, Mr. McMillan. I'm sure Will will be happy to uh, to give us a few of his uh, opinions on the matter of Mr. Kavanaugh. Just to round out what a few others have had to say, Ronald Brownstein, writing in theatlantic.com, noted that for years, Supreme Court Justice John Roberts has been deeply worried about preserving the court's legitimacy. Yeah, well, he should be. A poll, which I can't seem to put my hands on at the exact moment here, uh, uh, recently showed that something like 27% of Americans had confidence in the Supreme Court doing the right thing. There's a ringing endorsement from the populace. At any rate, the uh, Kavanaugh hearings must be regarded as Robert's worst nightmare. Ronald Brownstein pointed out that, that when hit with allegations of sexual misconduct, a visibly furious Kavanaugh accused Senate Democrats of colluding to sink his nomination. As he railed about the Clintons and, the, and future political payback, he sounded like a Republican operative in robes, which, of course, he is. The New York Times noted that with sneering sarcasm, Kavanaugh demanded that Senators Sheldon Whitehouse and Amy Klobuchar share details of their own drinking habits before answering the relevant questions about his high school debauchery. Roger Cohn, also in the Times, said Kavanaugh came across as an angry brat and an entitled, self-pitying frat boy. Nathan Robinson, writing in CurrentAffairs.org, said that the dramatic Senate testimony did prove one thing. President Trump's Supreme Court nominee is a serial liar. Kavanaugh insisted he never attended an event like the informal drinking gatherings where he allegedly assaulted Blasey Ford, but his own calendar showed he went to a friend's house for skis. Brewskis, that is. On a weeknight with two of the boys, Blasey Ford said were present that night. Kavanaugh portrayed himself as a studious virgin, admitting to occasional excessive drinking on weekends, yet his high school yearbook lists him as a treasure of the Keg City Club. He includes his boast, a hundred kegs or bust? and refers to him as the biggest contributor to the Beach Week Ralph Club, a reference to Ralphing or vomiting, of course. In defense of Kavanaugh, the Washington Examiner said that Kavanaugh has conceded that he drank sometimes too much, but never to the point of doing things he didn't remember, except that <laughs> there are X number of people that were his roommates at Yale that say, yeah, he did it all the time. Oh, and by the way, that FBI investigation of Mr. Kavanaugh, well... That roommate in question tried to reach the FBI to volunteer information about this, and they just they never got back to him. This led to another Andy Borowitz headline, which was, to paraphrase, Mafia chieftains demand FBI background investigation equal to that of Kavanaugh's. Theintercept.com also pointed out that um, Kavanaugh, well, repeatedly perjuring himself under oath, you know, should have had some consequences. He claimed that Blasey Ford's friend at the time, Leland Kaiser, had said both the party and the attack didn't happen. In reality, she said she does not remember the party, but believes Blasey Ford's allegations, which isn't exactly the same thing, is it? At some later point, he claimed that he got onto Yale without any help, failing to disclose the fact that his grandfather attended Yale, making Kavanaugh a legacy admission. Anyway, if any of you out there got your hopes up, the FBI was going to do an actual investigation that had any danger of, uh, you know, derailing Kavanaugh's nomination, well, I would say you need to listen to Radio Parallax more often. Not necessarily for our occasional cynicism, but, but for our, let's call it, skepticism. 
Yeah, it's true that Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska joined Jeff Flake in backing the idea of actually holding a sham investigation. But House Majority Mitch McConnell did say he would call for a vote just as soon as the FBI concluded its expanded background check. Before voting, he said the time for endless delay and obstruction has come to a close. Yes, as the White Queen said in Alice in Wonderland, sentence first, verdict afterwards. Anyway, Donald Trump has now gotten two whacks at it in his year and a half in office because, well, the Republicans torpedoed President Barack Obama's selection of Merrick Garland. These are sad times. I'm just sitting here wringing my hands and watching helplessly. All right, let's dump politics like a hot potato and talk about science, technology, that sort of thing. That always brightens our day. Let's talk about the Nobel Prizes. The Physiology Prize this year went to James Allison of the University of Texas and Tasuko Honju of Kyoto University for the discovery of cancer therapy by inhibition of negative immune regulation. This stuff is already revolutionizing the treatment of certain cancers and is is a wonderful, wonderful thing. These researchers had the idea, since we know that remissions from apparently terminal cancer, though rare, does happen from time to time. They long held to the dream that it might be possible to harness the body's immune system to attack malignancies. Proteins were found on the surface of T-cells, part of our immune system, that when activated would put the brake on the T-cells' ability to respond and fight cancers. So they developed antibodies that would block that protein and prevent the breaking action. This stuff is already saving lives, and we're just happy to talk about it. I do want to also mention on a lighter note, new scientists riff on uh, the Nobel Prize. They had a little cartoon, a letter section, titled Fake Nobel Prize Scams and How to Avoid Them. The first panel was, Nobel Prizes for the scientists are presented by the King of Sweden. If you're given a Nobel Prize by anybody else, it will almost certainly be a fake. The second panel is, Alfred Nobel did not leave a, quote, secret cache of spare Nobel Prizes in a long-forgotten Swiss bank fault, unquote. Anyone claiming to have access to it is a fraudster. And finally, in the third panel, they note that the official website for Nobel Prizes is, nobelprize.org beware of fake sites such as you've won a nobel.se or bigsciencecashprize.net and also nobelforyou.biz and we at Radio Parallax think it goes without saying that if you're contacted by anyone from Nigeria noting that if you'll send them a small amount of cash they'll be able to free up a Nobel Prize for their uncle well just delete it. In other science and technology news, we hope that um, some of you at least might have been in, well, I was going to say the Bay Area, but you could have been anywhere in California from Palm Springs to Sacramento and most points in between to have seen the launch of SpaceX's Falcon 9 rocket from Vandenberg Air Force Base last week. It uh, put on quite a spectacular show in the sky. These things do put on quite, quite a show. Um, this was different than previous launches, which I've occasionally caught over the decades, in that the first stage remained lit and was visible moving away from the upward portion of the rocket, and it in fact did manage to land back at Vandenberg, the first time that Elon Musk's uh, rockets have accomplished this feat here on the West Coast. I think this is just uh, 
marvelous stuff. Anyone who grew up with old science fiction movies back, uh, you know, in the 50s and 60s uh, would note that back in those days, they thought rockets would fire their retros and come back and land. NASA took a different approach. But Elon Musk has, uh, you know, I think invoked the original idea of a lot of uh, rocketeers. And uh, more power to Mr. Musk. One thing about this launch I had not observed in previous ones was that there was a hint of color in the exhaust gases. I'm looking at, uh, at, a, at a, a photo of the launch, and, and yes, indeed, it's the blue colors, the red colors, some yellow in between is quite visible, the colors of the rainbow, and I think that's exactly what they are. I, I guess that either droplets or ice crystals high in the atmosphere at, at a certain angle away from the light source do uh, indeed form a rainbow. Anyway, pretty cool technology. And uh, here's a headline from a pure science story that uh, may engage you. New Scientist magazine notes that cats are actually surprisingly bad at catching rats. Said the magazine, if you're plagued by rats, think twice about getting a cat. A prowling feline might lead to the appearance of a rat-free home, but it turns out the rats are still there. They're just keeping a low profile. Apparently, Michael Parsons of Fordham University in New York said cats are not the natural enemy of rats. They prefer smaller prey. And they've been studying a rat colony at a recycling plant in New York noting that when feral cats moved into the plant, the researchers were dismayed, but decided to set up infrared cameras to monitor the area. Over five months, they saw just three attempts by cats to catch rats, only two of which succeeded. The rat population is still thriving, said Parsons. He notes that cats have a good reason to be cautious. The common rat has large incisors that can inflict a painful bite and carry lots of diseases. They also weigh 340 grams on average, compared to just 25 grams for a mouse. Parsons thinks that only starving cats will attempt to tackle rats, unless the rats are sick or injured. They did note the cats had a big influence on rat behavior, however. Rats overestimate the risks posed by cats. And Parsons' his team found that when cats are in the area, rats spend much more time in hiding and creep around more cautiously, which means they are much less likely to be seen by people, which could explain why most people wrongly think cats are good at killing rats. He goes on to say that some cat owners may be convinced their pets are excellent ratters, but, but Parsons has found that many people mistake mice for rats. As an addendum, I would like to add that yours truly definitely knows the difference between a rat and a mouse. And that I have had many cats that were good at catching both. Although I will note that my late and much beloved cat, Clyde, uh, lost interest in, in tackling squirrels at some point. She was taking down these arboreal rodents that were like half her size when she was still a juvenile. But at some point lost interest. I think because those, that, those incisors that were previously mentioned may have had a role in it. But uh, she never completely gave it up. She was just a little more cautious, kind of like those rats when the cats are around. And here's a story that frankly I don't remember whether we talked about it before or not. But I still find it so astonishing that we're going to talk about it now either way. If you're a student of biology or remember your biology, you will know that in the fossil record, the earliest large complex organisms appear in the fossil record about 570 million years ago, which is just before this huge explosion of animal diversity, which we refer to as the Cambrian explosion, because all of a sudden there's life everywhere in the rocks. Before that, there are a few examples. People have scratched their head over just what they're looking at. I mean, these, these palm-like, these frond-like structures, people wonder, is this a plant or is this an animal? What is this? 
Some have said maybe it's a lichen, maybe it's a giant amoeba, maybe it's a failed experiment in evolution. New scientist reports that Jochen Brokes at Australian National University and his colleagues have found fats, fats in 550 million year old fossils. The fossils were of a thing called Dickinsonia, a type of Ediacaran that uh, seems to confirm it was an early animal. These, these Ediacarans are the things we find that were just before the Cambrian explosion. And um, I wish I knew more about it. We should probably find somebody from the geology department to talk about this. And you know, I say things like that on the show all the time. And sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't get around to it. For those of you who are disappointed when I make mention of it and don't seem to get around to it, at least in a timely fashion, I, I, I offer my apologies. Either that or, or I blame Mr. McMillan. But, but really, how can it be that rocks that have been sitting around for half a billion years can contain cholesterol-like molecules that, that, that are still there? And that's how they made this call. These, these cholesterol-like molecules, which are noted to be found in almost all animals today, while non-animal life forms have a lot less of, of them. So that's, that caused them to believe this Dickinsonian was an early animal. They're, specula they're speculating that Dickinsonian probably used cholesterol to build cell walls, like, like organisms do today. In particular, animals. And here's a story about life and its chemicals that is even more screwy. Apparently, octopuses, and, and I gather that it is correctly octopuses, not octopi, are notoriously smart. They're also known to be rather antisocial. The only times an octopus will get together with another octopus is to mate, not only for a short period of time. Yet somewhere along the way, a neuroscientist at Johns Hopkins University named Gold Dolan discovered that octopuses and people share the genes for a protein which is targeted by the drug MDMA. That is the psychoactive substance in ecstasy. So apparently she decided to find out if the drug might change the behavior of an octopus. She put the octopus in a tank with three connected chambers, one empty, one containing a Star Wars figurine, and one with another caged octopus. Without the MDMA, the cephalopod, which is what an octopus is, focuses attention on the action figure. But after taking low doses of MDMA, the octopus spent much more time with its fellow invertebrate, even hugging its cage. The researchers said others displayed similar behavior, and some became playful, doing what researchers described as water ballet. Well, I think that's probably in the eye of the beholder. But actually, this is some pretty interesting science. If you can study the effect of MDMA in an octopus, knowing that, you know, well, we have some similar chemistry, but we're not that close, you know, evolutionarily speaking, we're finding out some very basic information about, you know, what directs behavior. This reminds me of the discovery that the receptor, which cannabis works on, is amazingly universal in the animal world. Starfish have them. Although we would note that so far, apparently no one's got the idea of pumping cannabinoids into a tank and observing the behavior of starfish, but hey, Biology departments, take note. We're not sure there's a Nobel Prize in this, but hey, maybe stranger things have happened. And in other biologic news, apparently researchers 
studying the genomes of tomatoes, have been using this CRISPR tool to edit the genomes and produce a product that is more flavorable and better for us. We need to talk in the future about the CRISPR genome editing technique, but uh, uh, before we do so, yours truly needs to bone up on it a bit. It's known that there are 50,000 edible plants in our world, but 90% of our energy comes from just 15 crops. I think we all complain about the fact that if you buy a tomato in the supermarket, it's a pretty flavorless item. But now, scientists comparing the genomes of food plants with their wild relatives allows biologists to figure out what changes occurred during domestication. And that is what led to two teams of tomato researchers to use this knowledge to reintroduce changes from scratch while maintaining or even enhancing the desirable traits of wild strains. It's a powerful tool. I hope it is used wisely. In a scarier example, scientists have used gene editing techniques to completely wipe out a population of mosquitoes. The Week magazine notes in its health and science section that Imperial College in London has tweaked the double sex gene in the Anopheles mosquito, which carries malaria. The gene in question determines whether a mosquito develops into a male or female. By introducing genetically modified insects into a caged population of Anopheles mosquitoes, noted to be the type that spreads malaria in sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere, the mutation blocked female reproduction but allowed males to keep spreading the aberrant gene. The population of the mosquitoes collapsed within 7 to 11 generations. Now, more experiments are needed to find out if this method is going to work on larger populations or with other types of mosquitoes, but eliminating an entire species would be fraught with bioethical and environmental concerns. But either way, people are excited about this. The study leader, Andrea Cristiani, told NPR.org, this is a game changer. This is a completely new era in genetics. Final science item for today's program. The Japanese have landed rovers on an asteroid. This is the first time this feat has been accomplished. The Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency's Hayabusa 2 spacecraft arrived at the asteroid Ryugu last June. September 21st, it dropped a pair of landers onto the surface. Well, they're calling them landers, but they're really hoppers. And these little hoppers have cameras, and yes, they're taking pictures from the surface of the asteroid. Now, I've looked at these pictures, and they look a little blurry to me, probably because the rover was still hopping. But uh, I'm sure at some point, uh, uh, Planetary Magazine, or someone's going to like clean up the images, and we'll get a whole assortment of them that are going to be pretty cool to examine. All right, we'll close out this segment with two items on water. We talked uh, a couple months ago about um, one of Jerry Brown's maneuvers taking place in Sacramento. Brown, of course, is trying to shove the Twin Tunnels $19.9 billion project down our throats. The Joint Legislative Budget Committee, after a couple of postponements, presumably so they could move the uh, meeting somewhere where no one could find it, held a hearing allowing the Department of Water Resources to extend state water project contracts for another 50 years. No committee vote was needed. Just holding the hearing allowed the state to move forward with the contract extensions, which in turn may provide the needed funding for Brown's water grab. The contract extensions could commit the 27 water districts that, that are part of the state water project to pay for the tunnels without the approval of voters and without 
the approval of the legislature. The San Jose Mercury News notes that voters and taxpayers should be outraged, adding, we are. The Mercury notes that Brown's successor, which is likely to be Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom, should kill the project if he can. You know, it's funny, I stumbled on a, uh, a Newsweek from 2004 showing a picture of Gavin and his beautiful wife, Kimberly Guilfoyle, who is currently dating Donald Trump Jr. after taking a whack at being a Fox News commentator. And by the way, if this doesn't raise <laughs> some doubt in your mind about Gavin Newsom's judgment, well, I don't know what you're going to need. Newsweek back in 04 noted that the incoming mayor of San Francisco, age 36, has already won national notice for his relentless ambition, his good looks, and his pro-business agenda in a famously liberal city. The magazine noted that Newsom touted work on the city board of supervisors against homelessness, reminding voters that he paid his way through college working as a janitor. Well, I can't speak to Newsom's janitorial skills, but I would say that anyone who's been to San Francisco and seen how well they resolved the homeless problem would have some doubts about our next governor. And oh yeah, the Republicans are running a guy. Apparently he's even worse. I hasten to add that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, do not necessarily represent that of this station, its sponsors, or the regions of the University of California. Or, as far as we know, anybody else. Let us take a short break. We built this city. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We got, we got lots, lots more in the second half, so stick around. We built 